Good morning, church family. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. I've prayed for you uh, this week. And I pray that your time as a family worshiping the Lord together would be sweet. It would be a sweet time of fellowship in your house this morning. As we jump into our, um, our study this morning, we're in the second chapter of the book of Ruth. You can go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. We'll walk through the passage together, uh, make some observations, and then hopefully apply the text to our lives. Uh, we've specifically not put this series on pause or jumped into another study or changed our focus uh, to, to reflect on what's going on in our world uh, because we believe that six, eight months ago when the Lord led us to this study, uh, He knew exactly what was going to be going on in our world. And so uh, we're continuing the book of Ruth. We, we've prayed over this text, prayed over you, and we believe the Lord has truth in it this morning that's applicable for right now and exactly what we're going through in our lives. As we jump into the second chapter of Ruth, I want you to think about a question. Who is the main character in the book of Ruth? A correct answer to that question is vital if we're going to understand the message of Ruth. Is it Naomi, perhaps? I mean, to this point, she has been uh, center stage in the text in the last few weeks. Or how about Ruth? Uh, the book is named after her, and the story this week will begin to revolve around her in a great way. Maybe it's Boaz. We haven't met him yet, but we will in the text today. And it seems that uh, he's the one by whom all of these tensions in the story will resolve. So who would you say is the main character in the book of Ruth? Well, it's not Naomi, and it's not Ruth, and it's not even Boaz. The main character in the book of Ruth is the only person with no direct speech uh, dedicated to him in the book. He never speaks. In fact, he, uh, he's in the background throughout the entire story. The main character in the book of Ruth is the Lord himself. If we get this wrong, we really miss the point of the book of Ruth. If you read this as a romance story, you miss the point. If you read this as a, a, a morality tale, cautioning us about good and bad behavior, then you misconstrue the message. If you, if you read it correctly, though, and see God as the main character, we learn some incredible truths, not only about God, but about the way God works in our lives. We learn to read God's workmanship and His activity in the, the, the mundane particulars of this story, then it also helps us to see that His fingerprints are all over our story as well. In other words, God is not just the main character in Ruth's story. God is the main character in your story. We're going to see that in the text this morning. Your life, like the book of Ruth, is all about Him. You can take hope in that this morning, church family. That, that even though our world is changing almost hourly, it seems like, though there's a lot of reasons that we would be tempted to, to fear and be full of anxiety, you can trust this morning that God is in control. As He was working in the book of Ruth for her good and for His glory, for His people Israel, for the coming of His Son through the line of Ruth, He's working in your life this morning too, church family. You can take great hope and confidence in that truth. So if you've not been with us, or if you missed a week uh, in one of the last two Sundays that we studied through this book, let me catch you up real quick on what we've seen so far in the book of Ruth. We saw a famine, a family, some failures, some funerals, and some faith. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In Ruth chapter 1, we saw a famine had entered into the land of Israel. In particular, this famine is in Bethlehem. Now that's a big deal, because in, in Hebrew, the, the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. 
So you know it's really bad uh, that, that, that the land of Israel that God promised to bless with His presence and bless with produce and fruit in the land and all of God's blessings is experiencing famine. And not only is His land experiencing famine, but Bethlehem, the, the center of uh, the, 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 the house of bread, the breadbasket of the country is experiencing famine. The people had been rebellious. The people had been disobedient and faithless. And this was God's punishment. This was His discipline toward them. Well, that's the famine. But there's also a family in Bethlehem, Elimelech and Naomi. And they eventually have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And this family, led by Elimelech, decides they have a better idea. Instead of bearing the discipline of God in this famine, and Elimelech says, hey, I'll, I'll move my family somewhere else that's not experiencing famine. And that's failure number one. They move outside of God's place, the land, the promised land. They move outside of God's provision, even, yes, the provision of discipline. And they move outside of His presence. They go to the land of Moab, and this is not God's place. Moab is a people and that, were, that were enemies of God. They hated God's people, and they were enemies, a long-time history of being enemies with the people of Israel. God's presence wasn't there. But it seemed like the grass was greener. It seemed like there was opportunity to feed his family. And so he makes the decision to take his family to that place. It seems like a pretty good decision, right? Wrong. Failure number two comes that uh, the boys, the sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women. This is clearly forbidden in God's word to the Israelites. God's law for, forbid them to uh, marry outside of the people of Israel. And as a result of these failures, there were some funerals. And they moved to Moab so they wouldn't die of famine. And exactly what they feared would happen, happened. They died. Elimelech died, followed by the two sons, Malon and Kilion. And this left three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And the question that we are, are left with was, what are these women going to do? They have no way to provide for themselves without husbands at this time in history. Naomi hears that there's a famine, uh, that, that famine has, has come to a close in Israel, that the Lord has brought back uh, bounty and produce upon the land, and she decides to go back to the promised land, to the land of Israel. Orpah decides, at the urging of her mother-in-law Naomi, to stay in Moab with her people, with her gods, with her family, the only land she'd ever known. But Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, says, No, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going with you back to Israel. There's a conversion experience where uh, Ruth covenants not only with her mother-in-law Naomi, but also with Naomi's God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And these women make the 10 to 14 day journey back to Bethlehem, probably on foot. Think about their situation. They're homeless. They're bankrupt. They're broken. Naomi has confessed her bitterness toward God. They're grieving widows that have nothing or no way to provide for themselves. But as they entered Bethlehem, as we saw last week, there's this glimmer of hope. There's this glimmer of hope. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. God is, is on the move. God is doing something. He's working for them in ways they can't work for themselves. He's bringing back produce in the land. As I told you, uh, God is the main character in this story. God is on the move. God provides this glimmer of hope. And it's with that hope that we enter into chapter 2. Read with me. If you have your Bibles open, we're in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Read along with me. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. A few things to note here, church family, as we walk through this text and make a few observations. First, watch how God answers prayer. Back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Naomi had prayed specifically for Ruth and for Orpah, her daughter-in-laws. And Naomi said, back in chapter 1, verse 8, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest. Here in chapter 2, the Lord is beginning to answer that prayer. Naomi prayed that Ruth would find rest, that she would find peace. And when she prayed, she meant that Ruth would find that back in Moab with her family, with her gods. But that wasn't the case. God's answering that prayer that, that, Ruth pray, that Naomi prayed, but she's doing it in a way that Naomi would have never imagined as she's praying in her brokenness and in her bitterness for God to bless these two daughter-in-laws. God's going to do it back in Israel. Can I remind you this morning that God hears and answers our prayers? That even when you're broken and you don't know how to pray, when you're hurting so badly that you don't even feel like praying and you don't desire to pray or know what to pray, God hears you and, and He's interceding for us. Christ is our great high priest who intercedes for us when we don't even have the words to utter. Can I remind you of that this, this morning, church family, as we're in a, a strange season in our country and in our world? that God hears your prayers, that, that right now when you call upon His name and you confess your dependence upon Him, He hears you. And he, he may answer those prayers in a way that you would never expect Him to, but He hears and He answers our prayer. We learn that lesson here in the book of Ruth. Chapter 1, there's a prayer. It's not even a good prayer. It's not even a prayer with the right kind of heart. And in chapter 2, we see the beginning of an answer to that prayer. Prayer is effective, church family. Let's pray for one another, even in this season of our church life. The second thing we observe here in the text is we observe God's providence. We observe God working by His providence. I love how Ruth takes some initiative here and she goes to Naomi and asks if she could go out, if she has her blessing to go out and, and glean and, and, and get some of the, um, the barley from the, the fields. And Naomi agrees, this is a good idea. We have to survive. We have to eat. And so she says, this is a good idea. Verse 3, it says, So she set out, that's Ruth, set out and, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And catch this next phrase. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. You see, we might miss what's going on here if we're not careful. In the Hebrew, this is a play on words. It literally reads in the Hebrew, She chanced upon chance, or she chanced chance and came to the field of Boaz. It literally, the equivalent of us today saying, as luck would have it, right? It's tongue-in-cheek. The point is, the reader is trying to get us to see that this is actually the opposite of chance or luck. It's the providence of God that led Ruth to this particular field. It's not accident. It's not coincidence. We need to remember that and cling to that truth in our lives as well. That God organizes the affairs of our lives. We don't believe in, in chance or happenstance or coincidence. We believe in a sovereign God who is in control of the affairs of the world, including each of our lives as He was in control of Ruth's life. 
Oftentimes, we don't see this in the windshield of our lives. We see it in the rearview mirrors of our lives. That, that once something has happened, we can look back and see a certain period of, of, of time in our lives when we say, God was clearly at work. I didn't see it then, but I see it now. I can see how He was working the whole time. That's God's providence. That's the way He's working in our lives. It wasn't by accident that you met that person. It wasn't by accident that you were at the store that day. It wasn't by accident that you were fired from that job. And it's not by accident that we even today are surrounded by this virus that seems to have everyone's attention and have a whole world in panic and fear. All of it is under God's control. He's he's sovereignly working in our lives. How many of us can testify and say, I know, I've seen that. I can say that I can look back on my life and see God's providence clearly where he's working in my circumstances, working in the details of my life. We can see that. Third thing I want you to see in this part of the text is look at Ruth's godly perspective. She's a widow. She has no sons to provide for her. On top of that, she's from the wrong people group. Remember, she's from the people of Moab. A little bit of of background there. They descended from Lot in the Bible. If you don't know who Lot is, this people, Moab, they're the product of incest. In particular, incest between a father and a daughter. This is that side of the family. The side of the family we don't see at Christmas that no one talks about or has interaction with, that's Moab. And that's where Ruth is from. That's her people. On top of that, she's from the wrong spiritual background. The people of Moab, they worship the god Chemosh. On top of that, she's not a virgin. She's been married before. And in that day, this was a huge thing in that culture. To no longer be a virgin. She's bankrupt. She's homeless. And she's at the food bank. I mean, that's essentially what we see here. If you go read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that this was the Old Testament version of the food bank, God's provision for those who had nothing. They could come to these fields and glean. Now, in in that situation, in that culture, it could have been very tempting for her to get by by doing some things that were ungodly and sinful. Even today, we can see this in our culture. Many women in similar circumstances find themselves in bad relationships so that they can move in with a guy because they believe it's the only way for them to survive. Or worse, sometimes women in this situation will do things with men in business in order to get or to keep a job because they believe it's the only way that they can make a living. Or worse, sometimes women in these sorts of situations even break down and give in to things like prostitution because they feel so hopeless, and this might be the only way that they can have a meal or survive or get by. I'm not justifying it. I'm just pointing out that it's a reality in our world today, and it was a reality in Ruth's world as well. That statistically speaking, the odds of finding a woman in Ruth's circumstances, in her brokenness, with all that she had stacked against her, living in holiness is very low. And yet, with Ruth, we see something different. We see a different perspective. She's living a holy life. Or at least in the text, we do not see anything explicitly unholy that's brought out to us. She's not sleeping around. She's not moving in with a guy to make ends meet. On top of that, she's a good friend to the only friend she has. If you want to call Naomi a friend, to this, to this point in the text, Naomi's been not very friendly to Ruth, but she's a good friend to Naomi. She's a hard worker. We'll see that a bit more in detail in a moment. She has faith. It's just a hint of it here, but let me show you in the text, verse 2. She asked uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, she says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, watch this part, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. 
Ruth believed she would find favor. Ruth believed when she left that day, left Naomi, that she would go and she would find grace, favor, and God would not fail her. She was willing to work. She was willing to labor. She was willing to toil as God provided for her. That's pretty incredible faith for a new convert. Remember, as we're looking at Ruth's perspective, remember all that was stacked against her, all the bad that she could have focused on. I'm a widow. I have no kids, right? Possibly even barren. I have one friend, and she's my bitter old mother-in-law. I'm a Moabite from a land where Moabites are the enemy. I'm a former worshiper of the demon god Chemosh. I'm homeless. Who in the world, in this part of the world, would want anything to do with me? That's the temptation for Ruth. And yet, against all of those things, Ruth's perspective says, none of those things are going to define me. None of those things are going to define my worth. I know I'll find favor. I know I'll find grace because I trust God will provide it. What an incredible perspective. That's faith, friends, that I know God will work. I know God loves me. I know He'll provide for me. I know He'll get me through this. That's faith. And it's an incredible perspective that we need to have even today, even right now. That we would trust, no matter how dark, how bleak it gets around us, God will provide. God will protect. God will Love me, show me grace, and bring me through this. Listen, this is, this is not a time for Ruth or for us to let hardships, our circumstances, define us. This is a time to let the character of our God define us. That as we trust Him, we reflect Him to a hopeless world. For Ruth, she didn't let her hardships or her circumstances define her. She let the character of God find her. I shall find favor, she says. Let's continue in the text. It says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now, don't fly past that this morning in the text. Picture that scene. When I, when I picture it, my mind goes back to that scene from, uh, from Beauty and the Beast. I don't know if you remember that where the bell is going throughout the town and she's headed to the library and she's like, hello, good day, hello, how are you? And, and they're all singing back and they're all doing the same choreography and they all happen to know the same song and the same dance moves. That's what I picture when Boaz goes into the field that day. Everyone's working, everyone's just hanging out doing their job. Boaz shows up and, and he says, the Lord be with you and they all answer back and the Lord bless you. It's sort of this, this picture that we have in the scene of Ruth that, that this is something they've done before. I don't know how many of you will get back to work whenever you're able to return to work and your boss is going to start uh, the day, walk into the office or walk into the field or to your construction site and, and start quoting scripture to you, expecting a, a scriptural response from you. I don't know how many of that, that, that is exactly what your day will look like when you get back to work, but don't miss the picture here. And instead of the customary greeting in Hebrew, which even still today is shalom, these rough, <laughs> working Farmers with big calloused hands respond to Boaz's scriptural greeting with, with the blessings of Scripture. It seems that they're, they're doing this out in the field just as another part of their regular day, their business as, as normal. So this tells us a couple things. One, it's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to make God's Word a normal part of our social interactions. How can we do that? How can we do that well? And second, it's a signal to us that things have definitely changed in the land of Israel. From hearts that were uh, faithless 
and, 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 and disobedient to God such that God would bring famine on the land, well, now there's a barley harvest. And the workers out in the field are, are echoing the promises and blessings of God back to one another as greetings. Things have changed. The hearts of God's people are turning back to Him. That's a good thing. Verse 5, as we continue. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. For this to make sense, we need to know a little bit about gleaning and what that looked like in the Old Testament. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, God commanded uh, Israel that when they were harvesting, they were not uh, to pick up the things they dropped. If they dropped something, they were to leave it there for the, the poor, for the needy. In addition, when they harvested their fields, they were not supposed to uh, harvest the crops all the way to the edge of their field, but instead to leave the margins, to leave the borders, they would leave the margins for the marginalized. Those in the community, the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, they would leave those for, for, uh, as, as, as a way that God would show His kindness. He would show, uh, God would show His love for those people, the less fortunate, the poor, through His people. More than simple handouts, though, this gave the poor an opportunity to work. It gave them an opportunity to work for their provisions that gave them a, a sense of dignity. Ruth here meets two of those categories. She's a widow, but she's also a foreigner, a sojourner. And so God is providing for Ruth through His Word and through His people. But oftentimes farmers, landowners, they didn't obey this command. They were disobedient to God's Word. And they would not allow people to do this, but Boaz did. And in some way, Boaz is providing for Ruth as well as for others, right? It doesn't seem like this is a one-time event. Like Boaz is surprised when his, when, his, uh, when his worker tells him that this is what they've allowed this lady to do. He's the type of guy that would let the poor literally eat into his prophets. Show the love of God to them. To show the love of God to the broken and the downtrodden. He's the kind of guy that by his actions, the heart of God, the generosity of God is put on display. That's an incredible feature and characteristic to have, church family. Boaz is a guy that, that we should learn from. And so this morning, as we apply this text, here's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. I want to ask the question, in what ways can Boaz be an example for us, all of us, but especially for us men? I want to ask that question. And first, let me, let me just say, I don't want to convince you this morning that Boaz is perfect. We're not to idolize him. He's a sinful human just like the rest of us. But there are examples given to us in this text and in all of Scripture where men and women from the Bible are good models for us and teach us. We've already looked at some ways this morning how Ruth provided a model for us, especially for ladies and for women and how they're to, to live their lives and, 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 and not give in to the temptation to just get by however they can. Right? Ruth provides that example of faithfulness even in hardship. Well, what about Boaz? In what, what ways does Boaz do that? This morning, church family, I, I have ten for you. Ten ways that we can learn from Boaz and walk more faithfully with the, the Lord in our world. The first one is this. He's a strong man. Boaz is a strong man. The name Boaz in the Hebrew literally means strong. Now, that's a big-time contrast from the other men that we've seen in the book of Ruth so far. Elimelech, Malon, Kilion. They were not strong men. 
Now, we don't know uh, whether uh, Boaz could bench press a lot or squat a lot of weight on a barbell. Uh, maybe he could. He's a farmer, he seems to, uh, to maybe live that kind of lifestyle where he was, he was not a scrawny guy. Maybe he could. But that's not the kind of strength it's talking about when we see his name Boaz. The kind of strength that we're talking about here, we also see in, in the book of, 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 uh, of, of Ruth pointing us to the fact that, that, that Boaz is the kind of guy, the kind of strength that he has is the kind of strength that he can, he can be counted on. He's a reliable guy. He's a guy that you can trust to do the right thing and get the job done. Boaz is a strong man because he's a man of integrity. His word is strong. Second thing though, we see, uh, he's a worthy man. The text says that in verse 1. It calls Boaz a worthy man. This can be a bit confusing. Judges chapter 6, verse 12, it also uses that same word in the Hebrew to describe Gideon. right? And in Gideon's context, in the book of Judges, it's talking about his worthiness as a soldier. He was a worthy fighter. He was a worthy soldier. But from the context in Ruth, we don't know that Boaz was a soldier. Maybe he was. But from the context here in the book of Ruth, and using the other uses of the, of the word uh, worthy in Hebrew, the, the idea here seems to be pointing us to, one, his ability to protect. He's worthy in that sense as a protector. And he's also worthy in the sense that he's, he has the ability to gain wealth. Right? That's the other thing we know of Boaz here. And that's a way that that word worthy can be used in the Hebrew. And so I want to think about those two things as a worthy man that we're called to be. Right? Our, our duty, our job of protection, protecting our families, protecting our wives and our kids. Now, that means more than just protecting them from intruders, right? From someone that would break into our homes. Listen, I want you to hear this, especially men. Listen up. The greatest threat in your home is not somebody breaking into the door to steal your things. The greatest threat in your home is what's coming into your home, probably through your TV, computer, phone, and so when we're called to be protectors, let's be protectors uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, in every way we've been called to that duty, to be protectors. But also look at this next part as it relates to wealth. He was worthy in that way, and I think, I think often we don't like to think this way because we have a skewed understanding of wealth. We often wrongly say money is the root of evil. That's not true. If you go and read that text again, it's that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Listen, praise God if He's given you the ability to go and, and, and be good at getting wealthy, right? The question is, will you use that wealth to bless others as Boaz does? As God's called us to, will you use the wealth God's given you in a generous way to reflect the heart of God? Let's get better at making money and being wealthy so that we can be generous and love and encourage and bless others. Third thing we see here is that Boaz is a godly businessman, right? We've already hinted at this a little bit, and I know we have uh, businessmen and women in our congregation that own businesses, that are managers, that are in charge of people, that employ people. Look at the way that Boaz operates his day-to-day -day business. We've already read the verse in verse 4. He walks up and he quotes to them, The Lord be with you, and they answer him, The Lord bless you. You know where that comes from? That's That's Scripture. It's reciting uh, the, the blessings of the Lord, the, uh, the, the, um, the Aaronic blessing there. But the, 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 the idea here of this echo, this back and forth, comes from the book of Numbers. That the priest would use this as sort of a chant, a, a call and response, that the priest would read the blessing and the people would answer back in the book of Numbers. In this way, Boaz is literally acting as a, as a priest 
in his place of business. If you employ people, if you have a company or you're the manager at a, at a company or you have employees, listen, you may be the closest thing to a pastor that your employees ever have. That may be you for them. You may be the only Christian authority that your employees have ever sit under or have ever uh, been under the authority of, all right? Or even if they're a Christian, even if your employees are believers in Christ, you probably spend more time with them than anyone in their church gets to spend with them as you work together. You certainly spend more time with them than their pastor gets to spend with them. And so this is a challenge to all of us, especially our, our businessmen and women in the congregation. Love your employees. Bless your employees. Pray for them. Pray with them. And as you do, you'll be more than just their boss. You'll be their, you'll be their boss. You'll be their business leader, but you'll also be their spiritual leader. You have a unique opportunity to disciple people who are around you all day long in your place of employment as a Christian businessman or woman. Utilize that for God's glory as Boaz did. Let's continue reading in the text. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field as they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been told fully to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. What else can we learn about Boaz here in this part of the text? Well, he Boaz is, is a man who saw people, especially women, as God saw them. Look at the first words that he says to Ruth. Boaz, the, the first thing that he says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. How did Boaz see Ruth? As a daughter. How does God see Ruth? As a daughter. When God sees Ruth, He looks at Ruth like a happy father looks at a daughter. That's my baby girl. That's my Ruthie. And that's how Boaz saw her. He didn't see her as a broke desperate, vulnerable girl that he could take advantage of. He, he, he didn't see her as a girl that he could easily have his way with because he was in a place of power and she was in a place of desperation. Let's be men like that, men, that see women as God sees women. I challenge all of our men to think about the way that we look the correspondence we have, the interaction that we have with ladies that we come past every day, on the internet, on TV. Let's be men that see women like God sees women. Next thing we see here, and we're going to hit these quicker. Boaz cared about Ruth's safety more than he cared about his profits. Look at verse 8. He tells her, don't go glean in another field. 
Don't leave this field, but keep close to my young women. In other words, what Boaz is saying is it may not be safe for you to go off and glean in another field. Right? We're going to see later in the text that her mother-in-law, Naomi, tells her the same thing. It may not be safe for you. Men may take advantage of you right? as a, as a single foreign woman. I can assure you, Boaz says, I can assure you if you stay here, you are safe here. Right? No one's going to take advantage of you. Just stay here in my field. In other words, to say it a different way, here's what Boaz is saying. Even if it costs me personally, I'm willing to sacrifice. Your well-being, your safety is worth my financial sacrifice. Stay here and just take some of the produce from my fields. What sacrificial love. What incredible generosity that Boaz is showing here. What a challenge for us as men and women. I'm not just talking about our men this morning, even our our ladies. At a time like this, when people could be getting laid off, hours cut, jobs uh, taken from them, how will we love sacrificially, right? How will we be more concerned about another person's safety, well-being, or being fed, even if it means we have to suffer a little bit? Even if it means we have to give up a lot? Let's continue. We also see that Boaz honored Ruth's commitment to purity. Now remember, it could have been tempting for Ruth to give herself to another man or men in order to pay the bills, right? To compromise uh, her her purity in order to to get food on the table. But instead she's working manual labor (laughs) to feed her and her mother-in-law. In other words, she's keeping herself sexually pure, right? She's not giving into that temptation. Look at verse 9. This is what Boaz says. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Listen to what he says next. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Boaz says, I recognize your commitment to do things the right way. And not only are you safe with me in my field, but you see all these other guys out here that are my, my workers that are harvesting beside you? You're safe with them as well. Why are you safe with them as well? Because let me tell you, I've had a little talk with them, and if they lay a hand on you, I'll chop it off. They know not to touch you. They're honoring your commitment to do things the right way because I've commanded them to. Listen, if you're a, a young man, a teenager, or a single man listening to this, be like Boaz. If God provides you an opportunity to, to have a relationship or even with just women that you come into contact with and you have an opportunity to show generosity to, honor those women. Honor the women that you have relationships with or that God may give you an opportunity to date by keeping her pure. Honor that commitment. Help her to uphold that commitment. Let me just throw this in there too. If in 20, 25 years when it's time for Ryland to date and my little girl's able to date, if any of you dudes... No touching her, I'm going to pull a Boaz and cut your arm off. So I'm just going to throw that disclaimer out for 20 years down the road when she's able to leave the house, right? Uh, let's continue the text. Uh, he was Boaz. We see the next thing that, that we can model in the text from Boaz is that Boaz was a, a generous man towards Ruth. We've already mentioned this generally, uh, generally speaking, kind of in a big picture way, how he was giving the margins of his crops to the marginalized. But as it relates to Ruth and her brokenness, her vulnerability, he was incredibly generous to her specifically. Look at verse 9. It says, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. If you skip down to verse 14, you see a continuation of this, this special generosity. It says, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat. 
the bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her the roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Boaz was going way beyond the legal uh, requirements of the, the law of Moses. He's going way beyond what he had to do, what he had a duty to do by God's word. And he's lavishing gifts upon her. But he's not doing it in a creepy way, right? And that's a warning for us as well. Let's not be creepy folks that love people in creepy ways. But he's fulfilling a specific need in a careful and thoughtful way. We need to be generous people. This is not just application for our men. This is for all of us. All of us, especially at this time in our world, need to be generous people. That would, that would extend the, the generosity of God to the people around us with our time, with our possessions, with our love, not just with our money, but with our service. In whatever unique ways we can, at a time when we're supposed to be keeping social distance between us, we need to be thinking creatively about how we can show generosity and love to one another. Generous people we see over and over and over again make better spouses, make better friends, make better church members. Let's be generous. Let's continue. Boaz encouraged Ruth's faithfulness. Verse 11 and 12, Boaz praises her character, what she's done, her reputation, and he prays for the Lord to repay her for that faithfulness. Boaz says, hey, look, I've heard the way you've treated your mother-in-law so well. I've heard about your faith, how you left the gods that you knew in Moab to worship the true God in Israel. And I'm praying that the Lord repays you for that faithfulness. I know it's been hard. I know it's taken faith to leave what you knew and come to a place that you didn't know. But it was right and it was good what you did. He's praising her for that. He's spurring on uh, faithfulness. He's encouraging faithfulness. What an incredible thought. You see what he's doing there, right? He's pushing her to be more how God has commanded her to be. I can't imagine there being a lady or a woman in our church family that would look at this text and say, man, who needs that? I don't want that. I don't, I don't need somebody to encourage me. I don't ever need to feel appreciated or I don't ever need to feel like somebody sees me, right? Of course. Of course we all need that. Let's be those kind of people that, that encourage faithfulness, that push one another to look more like Jesus. Godly men especially, let's encourage our wives, our daughters to pursue faithfulness. Next we see here that Boaz positioned himself to be the answer to his own prayer. Watch this. He, we mentioned that he prays for the Lord to bless Ruth, right? He prays that the Lord would reward fully her faithfulness, but he didn't stop there. Look at verse 12. He says, A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So, question, whose wings had she come under for refuge? God's. But whose field was she literally taking refuge in? Boaz's. A lot of times, here's the truth, the spiritual application here for us, church. A lot of times, God wants to use you to be the answer to your own prayer. He prays, God, would you bless Ruth? And God answers us and says, yes, I'm going to bless her and I'm going to use you and your possessions to do it. The point here for us, church family, is that we would be those kind of people that look for ways where God would use us to be the answer to our prayer, right? 
This is the point in the sermon, uh, the teaching time, where husbands, you, you look over at your wife on the couch and say, I pray that you feel loved. And then <laughs> you make sure that prayer is answered by the way that you speak to her the rest of the day, and the way that you show acts of love to her in, in service, compliments, and the way you care for her. This is the part where we pray. I, want, I pray that my, my son or my daughter would have a, a great prayer life and a prayer partner when they, they grow up. And God says, yeah. Let's start that this evening. Go and pray with your kid before they go to sleep tonight as you tuck them into bed. Start that great prayer life now. Be that prayer partner now. Be the answer to your own prayer, right? This is what Boaz is doing. He's not just praying and saying, God, you do this, but he's praying and then he's seeking to be part of the answer to that prayer. Active faith says, God, I pray that you would do this and then I pray that you would enable me by your spirit to be a part of the thing, the answer of the thing that I'm praying for. Last one here we see that finally, the example we see from Boaz is that he comforts her and speaks kindly to her. Like this is literally right out of the text in verse 13. Ruth says, I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. To this point in the book of Ruth, no one has comforted or spoken kindly to Ruth, but Boaz does. She's been hurting She's broken, she's destitute, she's grieving, she's dealing with bitter Naomi. On top of that, she's been working all day, she's covered in grime and dirt from working in the fields all day long, hair probably a mess, she probably smells like a bear, I mean she's probably sweating down in this Israeli heat, her, she probably has pit stains under her arms, I mean this, it's not a pretty sight here for Ruth, and the last thing on her mind is meeting Mr. Wright. She just wants to eat. She just wants to provide food for her and her mother-in-law. And Boaz walks up to her, and in that context, and in that scene, he says, I'm going to comfort her. I'm going to care for her. I'm going to speak kindly to her because she's a daughter of God. And I don't want anything in return. He's being sensitive. Listen, church family, and especially men right here, if you've tuned out, tune back in. Being sensitive and caring and compassionate and loving and speaking kindly and with grace doesn't make you a wimpy dude or a sissy. In fact, it's the opposite. God's Word says it makes you a Boaz. It makes you a strong man. It makes you a man that's godly. Let's be men like that, that speak kindly, that comfort, that speak with care and compassion, especially to the women in our lives. Well, let's see how the chapter concludes. It ends with a conversation between Ruth and Naomi. After Ruth came in from gleaning that day in Boaz's field, verse 17 says, She gleaned until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ifa of barley. She took it up and went into the city. Her and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out and gave her what food she had left over from being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said uh, to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she took her mother-in-law with, uh, took her mother-in-law, she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I had worked uh, is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We'll get into that next week. And Ruth the Moabite said, 
Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her, uh, said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. We can almost picture Naomi's eyes, right? Getting as big as saucers when Ruth comes back and has all of this barley. And she's like, where in the world did you get all of that? Right? Like the implication is that she had abundantly more than she needed or expected that she would go and get when she left home or wherever they're living on that day. Let me make some application for us as we think through this text and and close. Do you remember in Matthew 14, there are 5,000 people plus women and and children, and they come to Jesus and they want to hear Him teach, and they listen to Him all day, and they're hungry, and they need to be fed. And when the, the disciples go out to look to see, hey, what can we provide these folks with food? All they could find was five loaves and two fish from a young boy. And Jesus multiplied those resources miraculously and they fed everyone so that everyone ate and the text says they were satisfied such that they even had leftovers. The same God who provided for Ruth and the widows and the orphans in the Old Testament is the same God who provided on this occasion with these 5,000 folks and this small boy's offering of food. And that same God is the God who provides for you and for me in His Son Jesus. Listen to me closely. The gospel is not that there is enough grace for you in Christ. The gospel is not that Jesus is an adequate Savior for every sinner who seeks Him. No. The gospel is that there is more grace than you can manage. There is more grace than you could ever exhaust. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. That's the gospel truth. That even in Naomi, and watch how this connects to the story of Ruth, even in Naomi's bitterness and with her brokenheartedness, with her heart that's shredded to pieces, even there in that, that place, in that headspace, she recognizes that kind of extravagant grace, right? Don't miss this. The last time that Naomi spoke about God was in chapter 1, verse 20. And it was there that she said God had embittered her, that God was the one who had brought her back empty, that God was the one who had brought all this calamity upon her. That's the view she had of God. But now, the very next time that she speaks of God, she sees things differently. In fact, she prays, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, right? Whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Meaning the Lord has not forsaken us. That's a completely different perspective. She's experiencing an abundance of grace and she's doing so because of Boaz's faithfulness. Because God is pouring out His grace through Boaz in a practical way. She sees kindness where she'd only seen calamity before. So she devises a plan and we'll see that plan moving forward in the next couple weeks. A plan by which Ruth can win Boaz's heart. But what we really see that all along God has been winning back Naomi's heart. That through all of this, God is drawing His daughter Naomi and Ruth to Himself. God is pursuing Naomi's broken heart this entire time and she didn't even realize it. Can I tell you the same is true for you today? As we wrap up, can I tell you that if you've been bitter towards God, if you've been doubting His goodness, if you've even been wondering if God even exists, or how could there be a God when we're surrounded by the kind of of things that they're talking about on the news these days? 
Can I tell you that God's been pursuing you? In all of your wandering and all of your doubting and all of your bitterness and brokenness, God is there for you and He invites you into relationship with Him. He's there to restore you, heal you, and lift you up. Would you come to Him today? Christ's death upon the cross for your redemption shows us that there is more grace in Christ than there is brokenness in you. I love you, church family. Let's go and use these discussion questions to apply the text and have conversations in our house. We'll see you next time. This has been a message from Poplar Spring Baptist Church. We thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at psbchurch.com.